Red Square proudly acknowledges that Federation Square is situated on the lands of the Gunarong and Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pays respect to their elders past and present. Hello and welcome back to the Anything But Square podcast. This is the second episode of our three-part series celebrating Fed Square's history, heritage and architecture. Today we hear from Donald Bates a partner of Lab Architecture, which won the Federation Square Design Competition. The journey the square took from construction to cultural centre was a complicated one, especially with its boundary-pushing design. We'll also hear from Paul Carter, the creator of Nuramu, and Jeffa Greenaway, the architect of the Koori Heritage Trust. And I'm Donald Bates. I'm the director of Lab Architecture Studio, and I'm also chair of architectural design at the University of Melbourne. I met Peter Davidson in London uh, in about 1983 when I moved to London after completing my uh, Master of Architecture degree at Cranbrook. Um, Peter, as another expatriate living in London, uh, had a small office where he was practicing, but he was also doing some teaching at the Architectural Association, and that was how I came to London, which was to teach and run a design studio at the Architectural Association. Um, we got to know each other through various um, meetings and being at certain lectures together and seeing each other's students on review panels and such and got to be reasonably good friends um, over the course uh, of the next few years. And then probably in about 86, 87, he and I organized some lecture series at the Architectural Association. So we started working together, not teaching together, but working together, bringing in outside uh, uh, artists and architects and philosophers and geographers. We did a series called Other Architectures, and we had people talking about uh, the origins of languages and writing and how that came about. We had people talking about philosophy and some of the writings of people like Heidegger and others, philosophers. Uh, we had artists talking about how they draw or how they make objects and where that came from. We had a choreographer talking about her dancing and how she constructs movement in space. So it was a range of things like this that Peter and I were interested in. And that's how we started doing a lot. I would go to Peter's office. His office was close to the AA in London, which is in Bedford Square. His was just up the road at, uh, off Tottenham Court Road. And um, I would see some of the work he was doing and have a little bit of feedback on some of the projects. And then in uh, 1989, I stopped teaching at the Architectural Association. I worked with Daniel Liebeskin, who uh, had been my uh, professor, my teacher at Cranbrook. And had re he had relocated to Milan, and I helped him as an associate uh, when he did the competition for the what at that time was called the Berlin Museum with Jewish extension and is now known as the Jewish Museum in Berlin. Uh, so I was his associate on the competition design for that. But I had already decided uh, when we were doing that that I wanted to start an independent school of architecture. So in 1989, I started an independent school of architecture in France and uh, set that up in Paris and would spend four months in Paris. And then we would move to the east of France to operate out of one of the Unité de Habitation by Le Corbusier, 
um, and do that for four months and then back to Paris and then back to Brie and, and back and forth. So did that for four years and then 1994 moved back to London to again do some teaching and administrating at the Architectural Association. And then that's when Peter and I really decided uh, we would keep doing our own private things. He would keep his office, I would keep working at the AA, but that we would start working together and doing design competitions. Well, we, I, we probably weren't ever commissioned before Fed Square. I mean, that's not quite true. Federation Square was project number 16. So the 15 projects before, I think the first project that we did was the design competition for the Cardiff Bay Opera House. Um, so this would have been in sort of 93 to 94. So when we heard about the competition in Melbourne for Federation Square, we thought, well, we've done two in Australia and been shortlisted. Maybe we'll be lucky on the third. So that's when we jumped in and did Federation Square competition. One of the things that really attracted us to the Federation Square design competition was the complexity of the brief, uh, as well as the demand for a civic space. I mean, we were very interested in, you know, what is civic space at the end of the 20th century? What makes it work? Why have there been so many failures, certainly from the second half of the 20th century, you know, from the 1950s onward? So we were very interested in sort of reconceptualizing what would be a successful civic space at the end of that century or the beginning of this century. It was in the center of town. It was in an incredible location, but it was in a location that, you know, for some reason had never really been developed. Uh, and it was starting to be, you know, that Melbourne, which I didn't know about, Peter knew more about, that, you know, the South Bank had started to develop in Melbourne, so people were coming back to the river, and this was, from an urbanistic point of view, was to be a new link from the CBD down to the river and make that connection across a, across a whole city block. So it was really that that array of things. And again, it probably, to a certain degree, fed back into that notion of relationships. It was, it was you know, we saw it again as how do you uh, spatialize these different relationships between an SBS and a, what became the ACMI, uh, between an art gallery, between a performance venue, between a public space, between commercial activities. For us, that was really important as well. The acknowledgement that it would have a, uh, you know, a, a good array of commercial uh, tenancies of some fashion or another, not necessarily just food and beverage, but of different commercial tenancies. Because we knew from other projects we had worked on that, you know, civic space works because there is commercial activation. Uh, you know, and we knew very well from our experience of London and the South Bank and the whole history of the South Bank in London that when you create these sort of cultural precincts without acknowledging the sort of energy and effervescence of an urban milieu where you kind of separate it off, that, uh, you know, it takes a long time for them to become very active. And, and in fact, they have to be redone to make them active. So, that was a sort of starting point already for us uh, that we felt was embedded in the program and the project of Federation Square. Well, it was uh, it was twofold, really. You know, when you or at least for us, when we're doing a project, there's probably at least five things going on simultaneously. So one was in previous projects like Wagga Wagga, a little bit with the future generations, but also a, to a certain degree with the Scottish Architecture and Design Center. There were certain things we had been trying to develop in those projects um, that we were interested in 
expanding on and taking further. Uh, so certainly the notion of how can one form perform multiple functions. So, you know, what might be seen as like an office building, depending on how it's configured, is also a connection to something else. Uh, you know, whether it's very linear, whether it's very square or rectangular, whether it's a, a big sort of container or whether it's a series of overlapping lines and overlapping spaces and such. So that was from a kind of formal development point of view, that was something that was going on and is something we'd been developing. When we, between uh, Wagga Wagga and um, the Future Generation project, we were invited, uh, because Wagga Wagga was um, in some books, in some architectural books, uh, Assemblage uh, was a journal, an architectural journal uh, from the U.S., and we were invited to uh, show the project in that. We were also invited to uh, go to Princeton and give some lectures and various other schools, and so we had been developing some of those ideas when we were doing Federation Square. And then we were asked to um, be the editors for a journal of architecture design, the Architecture Magazine journal that comes out. And so we edited that and put it under the name of After Geometry. And the reason we titled it After Geometry was not because geometry was over. It was just what other ways of making determinations of architectural form, particularly at a large scale, sort of urban scale, other than using pure geometries, you know. Melbourne's a city based on a city grid. You have other cities like Paris that have axial uh, sight lines and axial planning in some form or another. You have cities that are based on sort of concentric forms or, uh, you know, idealized form, idealized geometries in some way or another. And so we were interested in trying to develop some ways of making order that weren't based on pure geometries. Uh, so looking, coming out of complexity theory and chaos theory, flock of birds, school of fish, these were ways where you see forms emerging. And so this question of emergent form as opposed to something that's strictly ordered like through a pure geometry. So the, the magazine allowed us to both theorize that and, and, and sort of put it out there, but also to show work of some of our colleagues that we felt was doing some of the same thing. So people like Greg Lynn or uh, Riser Umamoto or Jeff Kipnis or, um, you know, a range of other people that we felt were doing some of this and that we were interested in, both to see what they were doing, but also because it uh, stimulated our thoughts and our ways of, of working and stuff. So... By doing that, when we started working on Federation Square, there was already that kind of research, you might say, and that backgrounding that helped to propel the work and to push it forward. Uh, so we were doing that. But you know, to come back to your question, we were also very much intrigued to look at what civic spaces worked and which ones didn't work, and particularly in light of civic spaces that are um, involved with um, cultural precincts of some kind or another. And, um, you know, as we, I mean, I didn't know much about Peter, I'm sorry, about, about Melbourne, but Peter did. Uh, he had been here, even though he was from New South Wales and did his undergraduate degree at UTS, he had been to Melbourne a few times. He knew a bit about it. But, you know, as we were doing our research, you know, you have the South Bank in Melbourne and, you know, you look at Brisbane and you have the South Bank in Brisbane and all three of these, London, Melbourne, Brisbane, the South Bank is that piece of land that's separated from the nitty gritty of the urban city 
where a space is defined and kind of carved out to put those high institutional things like galleries and museums and concert halls and recital halls and such and give it the space, the kind of, I mean, we call it the kind of Acropolis effect where you separate these high profile things and kind of build almost a slight bastion uh, around them so that they're not influenced by the day-to-day nitty-gritty, got to earn some money, make a living kind of life. They're more elevated, one might say elite, But in all of those instances, in their first iterations, that's all they were. And so if there wasn't a performance on, there was nothing happening there. And if it was after a certain time and the galleries were closed, there was nothing happening there. And we felt that, you know, particularly for a project like Federation Square, you had to make it where you can do multiple things at the same time. You know, you can go get something to eat while going to the gallery on your way to the football, on the way back from the football, that this hierarchy of elite art-based or art or cultural-based activities as opposed to the day-to-day activity needed to be broken down. And so from our point of view, if you look at some of the great cities of the world where there are spaces and public spaces, they're as much a transit point as they are a destination. There's something you go through on the way to something else that's major and important. But you might linger because there's a great cafe there, or you might linger because there's a great bookshop there. You might linger because, you know, there's uh, uh, some clothing that's there that nobody else does, a hat shop or a shoe shop or something. So, you know, we wanted at all times to not see that even though you say, I'm going there to do this, I'm going to the gallery, more than likely you're going to do something else as well. And we really wanted Fed Square to have that multiplicity of uses, that sort of that heterogeneity, you might say, of activation, and that heterogeneity and diversity of participants. It wasn't just for one level or class of people within a community. It's for everybody. And everybody takes something different from it and brings something different to it. So we were interested in that kind of permeability, permeability of the site, but even permeability of the destination so that you can come from Flinders Street through the ACMI, uh, Alfred Deacon building, SPS building, and you can go there and do all the things that are there, but you can also just pass through it on the way to this building, the crossbar building, or on the way down to the riverside, or vice versa. Or if you're coming from, from Swanston Street and the tram stop, and come across the plaza, down the stairs, through the NGV, and out through Russell Street. You don't have to come to the building, but you can use the building to go elsewhere or go to the footy or something like this. So, and part of the reason for that went back to this notion that we wanted the site to have this permeability, that there were multiple ways to experience it. There wasn't just the one route as the only way to have that experience. When we were doing Fed Square, we our aspiration was for it to be the homepage, you know, so going back to a kind of internet uh, metaphor, we really saw it as the homepage. It's the place you go to, before deciding what you're really going to do. And I would say that 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 was, you know, that was an aspiration that we felt was completely vindicated within a year of it opening. That we knew of lots and lots of people that if you have if you if you don't know what to do, just meet at Fed Square and then we'll decide. Federation Square, from our point of view, was uh, quieter, less flamboyant, bits different, and some people thought it was too quirky and too strange, but, you know, it only starts to make sense when you put a little bit of effort into it, and you, you don't quite know why is that facade like that, why does it have those material, what's that pattern, but then as you kind of look around and move through it and come back a second time or a third time or a fourth time, you start to go, oh, okay, that relates to that, and that has that relationship, and okay, now I know that if you go from here, you can also end up over there, and that 
that relates to when you came in here and so on and so forth. So that was what we were hoping to achieve was that degree of engagement through participation as opposed to just a pure image. Well, look, it, uh, it introduced us to politics in a way that we had not been introduced before. Um, you know, that you realize that people made statements without thinking or they do them for purposes that have nothing to do with the, the situation. Um, unfortunately, it, it happened twice. I mean, it happened then with the um, opposition treasurer who became eventually one of the premiers. Um, you know, just because he was the opposition. So he had to be opposite of the liberal government, of Jeff Kennett, um, you know. And then when Kennett lost his election after we had started Federation Square uh, and uh, Steve Brax was told by various people, oh, you know, you have to make a point of doing something, you know, so let's get rid of this building on the corner without ever talking to us, without ever understanding why it was there, without ever having a kind of, uh, you know, uh, review that would actually understand it. And, you know, I would, he hasn't necessarily sent me this in a letter, but I would say that I think Steve Brax would now say he made a big mistake, that he should not have interfered and stuff. But that's, that's what happens in politics and such. But it was also, you know, there was a very interesting time, uh, you know, having won the competition. We, we did one thing which I think was, well, certainly I feel good about having done it, whether it was smart or not smart, was when we won the competition, you know, there was a lot of, you know, non-supportive uh, actions. I mean, as I said before, peop- uh, you know, groups like ARM were really very angry that we got it. We weren't from Melbourne. What did we know about Melbourne? Who did we, who were we anyway? And so on and so forth. Uh, but when, when we were announced and the, the models and the drawings were on exhibition at the town hall, we agreed to stay there for two to three days and we would ask, answer any question of anybody who came in. And so Peter and I were there for two, at least two days. It might have been three days. And we just stood there and whatever anybody wanted to say or whatever question they wanted to ask, we would try to answer it as honestly as we could at that time. Because we felt that we had, you know, it wasn't so much that we thought we were absolutely right. It's just that we had done, we had designed it for particular reasons and with particular ideas in mind. And, and we felt a sort of civic obligation that we had to stand up for it and, and be there. And, you know, the, the, the premier's office, Kenneth's office, was a bit worried because, you know, they wanted to give us media training and make sure we were stayed on message and all those kind of things that you do as a politician. And But after the first sort of two or three hours of us handling the questions, they kind of backed off and realized that we actually kind of knew what we were talking about. And so after that, you know, we did lots and lots of public presentations, had lots and lots of questions. The stuff in the newspaper was probably a bit more painful, I would guess. I mean, not, that, not, not because we didn't expect it, but there were some articles that were really, in, in, from our point of view, certainly in hindsight, were really just not on. You know, one of the things that we had advocated quite strongly to Kenneth and it didn't happen was that people needed to know about the project even before it was finished. There was a little bit, you know, and again, this kind of goes back to the difference between a politician and maybe somebody else, was this sense of uh, handing it over at an important moment as if you're opening a box a gift so it's like you know nobody should really see what's going on until it's finished and you open this box and here's this incredible cake or something like that and we had always wanted people to know federation square before it was finished we wanted to create what john warwicker who did the graphic design said was a kind of forememory 
that is, to know something about it before it actually existed. And that didn't happen under Kennett, but after Brax came in, um, within the, the year or so after, there was actually an open day when it was still a construction site. And it really made a difference, you know, because, you know, I mean, this is just one of the ironies of any kind of building, you know. People would pass by and they'd see a three-level structure going on and go, oh, it looks just like a car park. What are they building there anyway, you know? And, and I can understand why people would think that uh, because they, you know, there hadn't been, even though, you know, we had shown the model and the drawings at the, after the competition was awarded, but, you know, actually being able to understand the scale, understand the basis. So there was this open day on the site when it was still a construction site, and it made a huge difference. People started saying, well, you know, because first of all, what is a Federation Square? You know, not, not so much the square itself, but, but what was going to be there? Nobody knew about the ACMI. Nobody really knew about SBS being there. Nobody knew about the NGV. Nobody knew about the South Asia. Nobody knew about the plaza not being flat, plaza having a slope on it. There were all these kind of components, you know, that nobody really knew about except for a few of us who were involved in it in some way. So making it open to the public while it was still under construction was of a huge benefit because then suddenly the tide turned and people said, well, you know, I don't know, but it looks kind of interesting. Some of the structure they're building there is, you know, pretty interesting how they got it to stand up and you know, it doesn't seem to be any right angles and yet it kind of all seems to work and you can go from here and you can go from there and you go up and you go down and you go over it. And so that was that was really, really important. And, you know, for it to then be slowly inhabited and, and you know, as we were speaking about earlier, of people treating it as the kind of homepage, the page you go back to, really sort of changed that attitude to how people perceived it. Not that everybody likes it. I mean, I still meet people every day. Well, not every day, but, you know, I meet people often who say, you know, I really like going to the events at first, but I'm not sure about the architecture. And from my point of view, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But I think in terms of the future, I, I think, you know, what is interesting is the degree to which um, social relationships have changed, but also our notion of what a city can be will change. And and this is one thing that there's a lot of conversation around the COVID-19 pandemic is the degree to which it changes our notion of proximity, changes our notion of density, it changes our notion of gathering and whether we should or shouldn't gather. I think one of the great things about Melbourne and uh, you know, certainly was our fundamental aspiration for Federation Square was that it be a gathering place and a place where people feel comfortable together, they feel safe together, they feel excited together, they feel energized together. And some of that's going to be confronting for the next few years as to whether we do go back to where we were before the, the pandemic or we actually change our notion of how a city works and what the purpose of a city is, given that we can all zoom in our, our, our work from someplace else, from our bedroom. While the architecture of Fed Square is critically important to its story, the square is actually situated around a piece of artwork called Niramnu. Niramnu is engraved on the surface of the Fed Square Plaza. The surface consists of three parts, a whirl pattern, nine ground figures, and nine vision texts. Its design relates to the global, regional, and local levels found in federally organized society. This artwork was designed by Paul Carter. I was approached by a member of the Public Art Advisory Panel about the project 
and that would have been at the beginning of 1998. And she asked me if I was interested in uh, having a discussion with the architects about the public art program. Um, and so, yes, I said, fine, look forward to that. Well, the, the first thing is that the architects were working with an architecture, a landscape architecture firm called Carrots and Brands. And Carrots and Brands produced with Lab this really remarkable landscape. The landscape uh, design was uh, obviously very inspirational. We had, over a period of time, some discussion about the translation of this proposition into something practical. So the proposition was, yes, you could develop a public art component by understanding um, the uh, resonances of the federal uh, story in the local environment. In other words, localizing the uh, architectural vision in relation to the local culture. I had suggested, I think, that one way to obtain an integration that was consistent with the architectural vision was simply to work with the surfaces that were already there. In this case, it eventually turned out that we were working with the landscape surface because this was a way of embedding a symbolic program or in embodying a, a kind of experience or sense of place in the site without introducing additional, for example, vertical elements or representational elements, which you often find in public art. I put forward a proposal for how to do that. It suggested a global pattern. It suggested that within that, there would be floating regions. And then within the floating regions, there would be local stories. And that three-part scheme was adopted from federal theory. So the idea was not that one could exist without the other. All of them were implicated um, in each other. And so that was the, the background to starting, starting the artwork. I think the breakthrough moment came in, it was in September in 1999. Peter identified uh, a stone, a kind of stone that he thought would work very well for the surface of Federation Square for the, the cobbles. The interesting point about that was, of course, Kimberley sandstone is is a, a marble cake sandstone. I mean, that's its characteristic. Uh, it has wall patterns that flow through each other so that no two cobbles are alike, and yet clearly um, the parts are uh, components of the whole. And that gave a decisive turn, I think, to the direction of the artwork because it became plausible then to pick out the global pattern, which is a kind of huge turbulent spiral in differently colored cobbles, but to do it in such a way that the different regions of the colors uh, merged or fused across their boundaries, which is exactly what a federal distribution of powers does. It's not sharp-edged. So the material intelligence of the stones, in a way, was the breakthrough. After that, the next step really was to, to think about the relationship between the stories themselves and their physical inscription in the side. So there were two considerations there. 
One was the physical location of the stories in the cobbles. But the second was how they would be designed. My thought was that we would take the word near and new and we would uh, treat the nine letters uh, as three triads and then we would, as it were, move the cursor along each of the triads. And as we did that, we would foreground different letter groups. And each letter group that was foregrounded would be uh, at one scale, um, then the triad left behind would be at the second scale, and the triad yet to come would be at the third scale. So we created 81, I think, variations on that single nine-letter word. I was able to start playing around um, just like a kid with a letter set or something, um, creating these regional we called them regional ground figures. And every one of them had a different conformation. So they were our floating rafts, which were the regions that sort of we began to drift across the, the space according to usually functional requirements such as adjacent doorways, shadow lines, walkways, um, likely um, drainage and stability points and that sort of stuff. And then the third task, having roughly... I worked out what their forms might be, their scale, and so forth, which was very much a, a matter of printing these things out at full scale and walking around on them and seeing how they looked. The third task then was to find a way to design the typography so that it worked harmoniously with these kind of rafts of stone. And that involved inventing federal font and then shuffling these letters around and these phrases around so that they were both legible but also communicated their meanings in the physical arrangement of the sentences. One practical challenge was the matching of the areas of the pattern to the availability of the right color of stone. The stone comes from the Kimberley. It was quarried there and it was taken down to Perth uh, and it was cut up into cobbles. But we were wanting to have this global pattern picked out in differently colored fields. So there was a, a blood red, there was a kind of lemon yellow, there was a blue-gray, there was a pink. I can't remember what else. So one of the challenges was for the stonemasons physically to go through all the cobbles they got and to separate them out into, I think it was six different color ranges, which is a huge task. But, of course, until they did that, we weren't sure how many cobbles we had in each of the different categories. So, for example, the red category was, I think, the rarest, the hardest to, to get, but it was a very important one. So that was a practical problem. Another unknown that wasn't such something that I had to take responsibility for, but obviously I was very concerned about, was that because the stone was not had not been previously used, so far as I know, in a, in a kind of monumental environment like this, its performance had not been tested. In other words... Its hardness could be tested, but how it would abrade, how it would erode, how it would respond to public use was a bit unknown. Um, I didn't mind for the artwork because by the time that we were this advanced, I was very taken with the idea that the stone would write back. So if you have a marble cake as your thesis about, about the genius of the place, and you have a stone that is marble cake, then in a way nature's done the job for you. So I looked forward to... Uh, differential erosion, which would start to write 
natural letters, as it were, and forms back into the back into the clouds. I didn't mind about that, but clearly that's not very good if you're trying to create a reasonably smooth surface. That first conversation was uh, about the challenge of marrying an innovative approach to urban design to a more traditional expectation about public art. So the innovative aspect of the architectural vision that Lab had was its integration of all the different elements. The challenge that created for the public art program was that it eliminated an obvious need for additional elements. The architects were keen that the the organization of the spaces should speak for itself. They wanted to avoid over-interpretation or indeed work that might interrupt the flow of the experience. So uh, we had a conversation about that and discussed uh, alternatives to the conventional public art program. One of the alternatives uh, was to look at the theme of federation. The architects had a very sophisticated understanding of the relationship between the kind of architectural form that they were pioneering and the structure of a federation. And so it was an opportunity to extend that understanding and say the theory of federalism, which involves a quite complex set of regions and their interrelationship, also applies to aspects of the local history of Melbourne. It has precedence in uh, Aboriginal social organisation and environmental understanding. It also has precedence in the pre-colonial character of the water environment in Melbourne. And, of course, it has... um, a white settler precedent in the fact of forming a federation in 1901. We thought that was an interesting set of overlapping or intersecting connections across media, across scale, across culture. This interlapping across scale and culture can be seen now in everything Fed Square does. And Jeffrey Greenaway has had a big part in these steps forward. Hi, um, my name's Jeffrey Greenaway and I'm a director of Greenaway Architects. I'm also an academic at the University of Melbourne and also the chair of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. So I've actually had a long history with Federation Square having been involved originally in the design competition in 1996 and then also later on in my career being involved in the design of the Koori Heritage Trust in the Yarra Building and also recently having been involved in some of the reviews as it relates to Federation Square and its evolution and and transformation through time as a a viable and important civic presence within Melbourne. So I think we've come to a moment in time and in a post-COVID environment, Federation Square is looking at itself and asking where to next. So it's had a really storied history to date and it's been largely embraced and part of the story of Melbourne. So what will it be into the future? And in many respects, I feel it has a 
an opportunity to recalibrate and find ways to really become a central part of Melbourne's, the beating heart of Melbourne, knowing too that you know, Melbourne's changed a lot over the last 15, 20 years. So it certainly needs to keep pace with some of those changes and the dynamics of, of the way in which we understand places of significance to a city. And I think as we mediate so much through technology, we're looking for authentic experiences of place. And what better way to do that than to get out and to connect with people. The social dimension of the place is actually really an important ingredient to its success. And providing those offerings and moments where we can start to really engage with place and look at ways where we amplify that sense of experience and connectedness. And we know in Melbourne, the convivial spaces, the, the, the laneways, the, the co cafe culture, the arts culture are really important ingredients. So in, enhancing those elements will really add to further layers of how we very much relate to and, and understand the evolution of the Federation Square through time. And so now it's a really important moment of pause to reflect upon that and find the best mechanisms of how to do that. And design is the answer, getting the design right. Understanding that in many respects, Federation Square is an incomplete project. The original design intent was in many respects not fully implemented. So there is further capacity there, for instance, to look at ways to evolve it and go back to the essence of what it represents and what it sought to do and how to really enhance some of those opportunities, but also to ameliorate some of those teething issues which haven't quite worked and that can that can be refined a little bit further, can be improved upon. So these are certain the, certainly the elements that need to be considered as part of the next steps to really transform Federation Square into the future so it becomes the destination for Melbourne. Fed Square has become an iconic part of everyday life in Melbourne, a critical civic space that shapes the city. But what exactly makes something a civic space, or even a cultural one? We'll find this out in our next episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.